You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. Our guest today is Chris Krebs, the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency uh, under the Department of Homeland Security, the person who was primarily responsible for safeguarding the security of our elections in 2020. Chris, welcome to Washington Post Live. Hey, David, great to see you. Thanks for having me. So just to situate our, our audience, uh, Chris, in his role as head of CISA, uh, was called on to guarantee the security of the elections and said after uh, the elections of, of 2020 that they were, and I'm using the, the words of the release that was issued, the most secure in American history, and that there was no evidence that any votes were deleted, lost, or compromised. And for that statement, of the security and reliability of the elections, Chris Krebs was fired by the Trump administration for standing up for, for the validity of our elections. Chris, I want to ask you one day before our midterm elections, why is this threat to our democracy that was so evident in 2020 from President Trump continuing? And what do you tell your Republican friends when they spread what we've taken to, to calling the big lie, this argument that the 2020 election was stolen. Uh, David, so just to provide some additional context around that statement on uh, November 12th of 2020, not that that date is seared in my brain at all, um, but that was a assessment by the election administration and election security community state and local election officials, vendors, uh, other folks that are involved in the actual you know, administration of elections. And that was their assessment. And, and so CISA is a part of a, a coordinating group issued that statement and amplified the statement. And you know, not only was it uh, deemed to be a safe and secure election, uh, you know, the, I think the statistics behind that statement stand up. It was certainly the most scrutinized election. We, we've seen, you know, the intelligence community report, investigated, reported, secured that, uh, secured the election. It was the most litigated, both pre and post election. You know, eight plus uh, lawsuits before the election, sixty plus after, and it was the most audited uh, election. So by the time twenty twenty rolled around, there were forty three states plus the District of Columbia that had some form of post-election audit. So the number of eyeballs that were on that election with no appreciable fraud, as Attorney General Barr uh, pointed out uh, in, the, in the wake of the 2020 election, I think supports the statement, supports the assessment of the group. Now, to the, the point of why does it persist to today, two years later, well, because it pays, frankly. I mean, both financially, it's a, it's a great fundraising mechanism for the former president and uh, a number of political officials and candidates for office, as well as elites and influencers, which leads to the second reason of why it persists, because it's it's a great clout chasing uh, mechanism. I mean, we, we continue to see sitting officials, as well as former administration officials from the last administration, you know, push narratives and push themes and push uh, lies about the election uh, when they should know better. If not, they you know they certainly could find out how elections are actually administered. But it gets them engagement, and there are a number of studies that show when when influencers, elites, or candidates post about normal, mundane issues that we should be talking about, like inflation, like uh, the border. Um, 
Instead, they, they post about these election lies and, and it gets them additional engagement. So it's, it's a benefit to them from an incentive uh, perspective. And I think the real harm is that it is shifting the Overton window. It's shifting what's politically acceptable in American political discourse into something that's much more dangerous and much more violent. So when I go out there and I talk to folks and I, I talk to a number of of uh, you know current GOP officials in the House and the Senate, and I encourage them to speak up and debunk. And you do see some of them doing. And I think Dan Crenshaw from Texas is a great example. Just recently on a podcast talked about how it's all lies. And we need more of that. We need leaders to step up and you know speak truth to the American people about how our elections are working because there's no good way out of this based on our, our current trajectory in this downward spiral of lack of confidence in American elections. So Chris, let me put it to you straight up at, at the outset of our conversation. Do you think that our democracy is at risk because of the behavior you just described? Well, I think, you know, if you really wanna talk about the tactical aspects of democracy at risk, it's more the fact that we have a number of candidates uh, for Secretary of State in Arizona and uh, in Nevada and Michigan and even the governor in Pennsylvania that selects the Secretary of State, those candidates have the ability to determine uh, the certification of the 2024 election. So we're actually seeing election denialists on the ballot across the country, and that's the real tactical risk to democracy. But but more broadly, Look, if 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 leaders, if our political leaders continue to you know push these lies about democracy, then then I think the American people, the voting base, and and citizens in general will will lose confidence, will lose faith, and and that you know that manifests in a couple different ways, including reduced turnout. It leads to uh, legislation at the state and federal level um, that that changes the way that elections are administered, not and not for the better. So yeah, I think there's both the tactical and strategic risk to American democracy. In tomorrow's midterms, some uh, candidates, the Republican candidates, are already saying they won't commit to the election results. President Biden, in a speech last week, called this move unprecedented and unlawful. Give us your assessment of a situation which seemingly uh, emulating former President Trump, re Republicans are saying, I may not accept this outcome. What are we seeing here? It, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a sad state of affairs and uh, a bit of an indictment of uh, Republican candidates right now where it's become fashionable to be vague or ambiguous and, and not be able to commit to the will of the people. Uh, when, you know, there is no evidence whatsoever that the government is, has been able to find, they're not aware of any, right now threats uh, or other risks to the, the process of administering elections that would you know, upend an otherwise free and fair election. So again, um, it, it, you know, that, the fact that it is a mainstream, almost platform issue for a number of uh, Republican candidates, I think it's a, it's a real crisis. And, and you know, one of the issues that frustrates me a great deal is that we, we see uh, some both sidism, right? We see this equivocating be between what uh, Stacey Abrams has done in the past, what Hillary Clinton has done in the past. But let's be very, very clear that, that, they, that, that, that those individuals did not incite uh, an insurrection, an attack on the capital of the United States in an effort 
to upend and interrupt the electoral counting uh, process. We did not see a behind the scenes uh, conspiracy to uh, you know lodge uh, false and fake uh, electoral uh, college uh, you know from from the individual states from the various states. And so you know one thing is yeah you know claiming that an election was was stolen and actually doing something behind it. And I think that's that's a key lesson learned and certainly should be taken to heart by everyone involved in the political process right now, is you do not mess around with the overall, um, you know, the, the trust behind the electoral process and the confidence behind it. It is not a game. You do not claim that an election was stolen. Uh, you, and if you do, you better, you better follow through and you better bring up some stats and you better have some litigation behind it that means something rather than what we've seen in the past. So uh, I, I think that, that you know, it, in an era where previously it required two good faith actors in an election, where really what you're doing in the election is proving to the loser that they lost, uh, you know, when you lose the the second good faith actor and they're acting then in bad faith, I think that's where uh, this this trust in the American political process starts unwinding. Let's talk about an ominous uh, new development uh, in this uh, election democracy story, and that's the growing evidence of efforts to intimidate voters across the country. Uh, teams of poll watchers and other uh, observers, in far greater numbers than in the past, uh, seem to be dispatched. And I wonder if you see an organized movement underway to make Americans suspicious of their democratic election process so as to achieve their ends? Well, I think what we tend to lose sight of, particularly here inside the Beltway and at the national level, is that all politics are national, when in fact, you know, most politics are actually at the retail local level. And what I think we've seen over the last couple of years is a distillation of these broader uh, national concepts of the stolen or rigged election actually start trickling down into the local communities. And we've seen over the last couple of years, like the fraud it in, in, uh, by the Cyber Ninjas team in Arizona. We've seen groups spring up like Clean Elections USA, which uh, is was organized in Arizona uh, and elsewhere. Uh, but specifically to some of those poll watchers or rather the ballot drop box watchers showing up in tactical gear as we saw in the intro video, uh, those sorts of actions are uh, entirely based on these themes of the stolen election and, and, and fraud, where uh, once again, we have not had any sort of, uh, there's no evidence to support these allegations, whether it's 2000 Mules, which has been steadily debunked by including Philip Bump from, uh, uh, from the Washington Post, uh, but it leads to these mainstreaming of the lies and it's activating a base that then is turning out in these performative and, uh, in, in, you know, not just performative, but also quite likely very dangerous, at least the possibility for political violence out there across the country. So it is this is not just free radicals. This is not ad hoc. There is a, a coordination and, um, uh, you know, th there's a broader sort of. Uh, orchestrated activity here that we need to be very mindful of. And I think that this is where the Department of Justice, this is where the FBI, and this is where state and local law enforcement really need to step up and understand what's happening here and protect the voters. But the key takeaway, David, and I'll, I'll wrap this piece up here now, is that 
it is overwhelmingly safe for American voters to vote, whether you voted in, in advance uh, for through early or absentee uh, voting or to, to vote tomorrow. So do not let these people deter you from getting out there and voting. That is in part what they're trying to accomplish here. So speak your voice, get out there and participate in democracy. I'm glad you said that because those uh, images of self-appointed election cops in tactical gear are are scary and you, you make the right right point don't don't be backed off let's, well let's David, one, one last one last element on this is that i i do think that kind of due to the clumsiness of of these groups getting out there and watching ballots they actually tipped their hand early which allowed for law enforcement to understand what was happening and then uh you know have the right interventions and you, and you actually saw the courts in arizona intervene and uh, restrict or move them back even further from the ballot drop boxes. So, you know, to a certain extent, I think, you know, the, the rule of law prevailed here. And, and once again, you know, the, the law enforcement community is doing what's necessary to, uh, to ensure a safe and secure election. Chris, let's talk about uh, a particular uh, aspect of the process that was very important in 2020 and is, is uh, likely to be again, and that's vote counting, as we have growing numbers of absentee voters, early voters whose, whose ballots may take a while uh, to count. The outcome, let's say, of the, of the battle to control the Senate, where we'll be waiting for vote counts from Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, that may take a few days. Uh, what advice would you give to, to members of the public about this process of, of delay? And what's your fear that in the days after election day, when the results are not yet announced, we could have uh, threats of violence and actual violence? David, this is, uh, this is one of my favorite emerging conspiracy theories, which I'll touch on in just a second. But, but this, the message here is the same as it was in 2020 is have patience. It, it takes time to count uh, to count these votes. And, and in part, state legislatures have actually made it harder and made it take longer. If Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, for mail-in and absentee ballots, they actually cannot start processing those ballots until the morning of the election. So states could change this. The state legislature should, could get involved. In the meantime, once again, you have political figures that are coming in and, and making claims of something of the sort of all of a sudden we're being told that it takes a long time to decide elections. Uh, when, when that's always been the case, think back to 2000, Bush v. Gore, that was not decided until December. Mail-in ballots are part of the political process. And as my friend David Becker uh, with the Center for Elections and Innovation uh, Research has said, you know, mail-in ballots date back is it, at least until uh, to the Civil War. So it takes time statutes uh, at the state level dictate how long. In fact, the, the quickest certification in the country is about eight to nine days after the election. So it does take time. So my recommendation, again, is, is just be patient, look to authoritative sources of information, and those are gonna be your state and local election officials. Stephen Richer out in Arizona in Maricopa County is one of my kind of favorites to point to as an, exa as an example of radical election transparency. But what good election officials do is they tell you where they are in the process and what to expect next. They proactively engage in the information ecosystem to take away any opportunity space or attack surface really 
for uh, you know disinformation brokers and and those that just want to sow chaos. So so let's keep our wits about us. Stay patient. Look to your state and local election officials uh, for for the latest on what's going on with the count and what the plan is and the expected uh, the expected timeline is for wrapping up that vote count. Uh, useful, sensible, sensible advice. Thank you for that. I'll ask you a question from our from our audience. Uh, Cheryl Grieve of Washington, D.C. Uh, asks, what can everyday Americans do to help safeguard our democracy in these times of disinformation and distrust? What are your top ideas for building trust in our democracy? So first and foremost, participate, right? And, and not just you know, make sure you've got a voting plan. Make sure you understand, check your registration, which you should have been doing weeks ago, but make sure you know, you know, are you in fact registered? You didn't get bumped off the rolls. Know where you're supposed to go vote. Make sure if there's any ID requirements that you have the ability, you, you know, have that with you when you show up at the polls, but, but vote and have a plan for voting. Also, you know, I think any discerning consumer of information should have multiple sources of information, not just the random person you saw on TikTok. No, you know, it, it's no different than walking down the street and there's somebody screaming something on the corner that you would take that as the gospel, right? You want to have a diverse set of information sources that, that can allow you to understand what's going on there more broadly. But again, look to your trusted sources of information uh, in elections, and that's going to be your state and local election officials. But, you know, most importantly, like we just have to just calm it down a little bit. Let's take uh, let's let's take our time, have a little bit of patience, maybe put down the phone for a little bit with, uh, you know, with with social media. But, uh, you know, we're going to I think I have a lot of confidence in the American people. We can get through this. But the last thing we need is we need to put pressure on our political leaders to lead, to stand up, to talk specifically about election lies, how it's not acceptable in American democracy. We have to hold them accountable. And part of that is, once again, it's getting out there and voting. If we're not seeing the sort of leadership we need out of our political leaders, then we need new leaders. I want to turn uh, from the subject of intimidation to the subject of actual violence. Uh, we saw in recent weeks the terrible attack on Paul Pelosi, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, uh, by a, an attacker demanding, where's Nancy? I want to ask you how you, uh, as a former DHS official, assess the, the threat of actual violence against our elected officials, Republicans and Democrats alike. I, you know, David, this is something that that is really exploded over the last couple of years. Uh, twenty twenty, you had a number of Secretary of State officials. You know, jo uh, Jocelyn Benson up in Michigan. I personally received a number of threats. I had people show up at my house. I received all sorts of threats. You name the platform online. I had people sending me emails. I had people using LinkedIn from their professional profiles sending me threats. It's a, it, it, you know, this is not a rational uh, group of folks sometimes. But it is, there's no question that the lies of 2020 that continue through today and will continue to push through 22 and into 24 are activating, they're radicalizing and activating. I think in part, that's what you saw in, uh, in, in California. And then just over the weekend, we saw white powder 
being mailed to the, the the campaign headquarters of Carrie Lake, the GOP candidate for governor. This is across the board unacceptable behavior. And once again, we need leaders to step up and talk about this. Now, this in part is also an area, I think, for the Department of Justice, for law enforcement, as I've already mentioned, to get involved and provide tools for election officials to protect themselves. And we saw Georgia uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, the, the Brad Raffensperger's office released uh, a tool for reporting of violence. We saw CISA also provide training on de-escalation techniques in at polls. So we're seeing an acknowledgement of these threats. We're trying to counter the ones that come in from the foreign uh, space. And we are seeing, you know, continuing to see active uh, engagement from our foreign adversaries. But from a domestic perspective, again, this is where we need to clean up our own house and we need our leaders to step up and call this stuff out as unacceptable. Uh, and we need to investigate and hold accountable those that continue to, uh, to, to participate in political violence. Chris, we know from looking at foreign extremist groups that there's a process of radicalization that takes place. You've spoken of the radicalization of, of some actors on the best domestic political scene. Uh, how do you de-radicalize people who've been swept up in a movement, who've been churned by social media and, uh, and peer pressure into these e extreme groups and positions? How, how does that process start? I think this is uh, an area where, where many professionals Experts are struggling. I personally have a very difficult time uh, with this subject and how you de-radicalize uh, people because it requires a great deal of empathy. And right now I'm in a little short supply of empathy given just the prevalence of uh, election denials and have, you know, given my experience and kind of the crucible that I and others went through in, in 2020. But it, it starts with empathy. We need to engage uh, the, the people that, that are promoting that continue to push these lies. Uh, and understand where they're coming from. And then to the extent you can have a conversation, you can understand, you can educate. Uh, it, 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 it's difficult. I get, I get that. Uh, it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. There's no, you know, there's no instant solution here. And it, and it may not actually scale particularly well. Uh, but we, that doesn't mean that we walk away and we, we just forget about it because it will only get worse. It will only calcify and metastasize uh, further. And, and that ultimately, as we've talked about for the last 20 or so minutes, that's that's just not a good endpoint for um, uh, for democracy. But but again, I just I want to take it back to that leadership piece there. You know, those that are that are continuing to, you know, with, at least in the masses, in the base that continue to push these these lies, they're not coming up with this on their own. They're, they're being fed. They're being conned. And that is actually one technique that I think historically works quite well, is if you can expose the people that are leading this con for power, influence, and money, you know, humans just fundamentally do not like being grifted. They do not like being con. Now, there is a degree of embarrassment with it, but they also re react quite negatively. So we've got to be able to call out and hold these people accountable that continue to push the lies. And, and there are a number of different mechanisms for that that are underway right now, including, I'd point out, uh, Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit uh, lawsuits against a number of defendants. That's that's one. Second is is again um, the second is holding them accountable. Uh, these these folks accountable at the ballot box, but but there are other other mechanisms as well. 
it's a, it's a new uh, plan, anti-grifting. Uh, we'll think about that. Um, so last week, Chris, the head of the U.S. Capitol Police said that his agency, responsible for protecting our members of Congress, needs more resources to, to do the job. Just for, for some background, startling numbers. In, in 2021, the Capitol Police reported 9,600 direct or indirect threats against members. That's more than 10 times the number that were reported in 2016. The question is, um, what kind of resources um, does, does the Capitol Police, does law enforcement in general need to protect politicians? We don't want to live in an armed camp, in a, in a, in a police state protecting protecting political officials, but but we're going to need more. What, what's your sense of, of, of how significant the additional resources should be? Well, you know, my hope is that we can actually make the right interventions upstream where we can, you know, de-radicalize people, where we can also start hitting at some of the mechanisms by which threats are being, uh, which they're being relayed and conveyed, and, and you start holding people accountable. And you are seeing through the January 6th uh, investigations by uh, the Department of Justice that that some of these folks that have made threats are being held accountable. So, you know, to the extent we can move upstream, I think that's probably the best solution. I don't have a specific understanding of what the what the you know the particular resource requirements of the Capitol Police is, but it makes sense to me that from a leadership perspective, uh, that you that they require enough enough bodies, enough enough uh, you know uh, officers to help protect uh, the the leaders of House, Senate, the congressional, uh, the various uh, parties in Congress. And it's not going to be one of those things where I think you can protect every member of Congress, unfortunately. So we do need to you know, continue to invest in the capabilities of the Capitol Police to work with local law enforcement as well. And I think that's that's something that, that gets left out a little bit of this conversation is that Capitol Police can work with state and local law enforcement back in the home districts. And those are some of the ways that, that you can uh, get a little bit more scale, I think, on the protection of uh, the higher value uh, uh, you know, protectees. Speaking of, of upstream, uh, one of the leading incubators, if you will, of, of political violence, of the threats to democracy that we've been discussing for this half hour, social media and Twitter uh, has been at the top of the list. Uh, Twitter is under new management, as you and all of our viewers know. <laughs> Uh, and the new uh, head of Twitter, Elon Musk, has just gutted the teams that were responsible for monitoring election disinformation. What sort of risk does that pose? And do you think the new owner is acting wisely in this regard? Well, I think we actually don't have a really good understanding of where the staff cuts hit within Twitter. My understanding of talking to folks inside Twitter is that the trust and safety teams actually retained about 85% of their, uh, their, their staffing and headcount. Uh, there was some temporary uh, suspension of access to moderation tools across the teams, except to the key, the, the key leaders, which, which I think from an insider threat perspective, anytime you have a change of management and potential reduction in forces happening, you, you, you would want to manage the opportunities for disgruntled outgoing employees. So, but those, as I understand it, those, uh, tools are being provided access to. I, you know, it's not as much, frankly, the, the, the internal content moderation piece that I'm worried about right now. It's the change in features 
particularly what we've heard about with with verification for $8 or $7.99 a month, that is happening at a very uh, contentious time in American politics, where you've got a very, uh, you know, a very important midterm. And the original plan, I think, was to open up verification, just if you're willing to pay, uh, they would verify on payment details. Um, where, you know, historically, the blue tick, the blue check mark, has been a marker of trust, right? It's that this person says who they say they are, they're a journalist, they're a political official. Official. Now, remember what I've been saying all along about look to your state and local election officials, look to those trusted authoritative sources for information. If you up in that model at a time when authoritative information is absolutely critical, I think there's a significant amount of risk. So, so it, you know, it was a good thing, as I see it, that Twitter has paused on rolling out that uh, that feature, whether it was due to those concerns I just laid out, or it was more of a technical implementation challenge, but we need to rethink, and they need to be very clear on what the verification status means. And it's fine. Look, Elon owns the platform; he can do whatever he wants. But if if he is going to make a radical change in the business model and the operating model, you need to clearly communicate to the users, and so we can reset the expectation of around what was historically a marker of trust. Now it's just a marker of payment. So you're one of the nation's leading experts on this subject. Has Elon Musk asked for your advice? Oh, no, unfortunately, I've, I've not heard from Elon. Uh, I do know that he's got a good team on board right now inside his company. There are those in the trust and safety team. Yoel Roth is a great example of a leader in this space. And I understand that that Elon listens to him. He's been retweeting uh, Yoel's uh, uh, statements and updates on election misinformation. I would encourage everyone to go follow Yoel to understand what's happening inside Twitter. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's as, as I just said, this is a really contentious time. Uh, Twitter's going through a, a number of different radical changes and uh, the, the parallel timing of these two tracks does not bode well right now. So we're out of out of time. Uh, I want to thank Chris Krebs, our, our guest, for a terrific summary of the issues the day before Election Day. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.